Welcome again to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to finish his dissertation and actually get a job. And here I am happy uh, to bring on yet another interview guest, and this is Sarah Stoller, who is writing uh, her dissertation at Berkeley uh, about 20th century uh, feminism and uh, women at work, right? Is that a, yeah. a, good, yeah. a good description? Yeah, that sounds good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about like what your dissertation is all about? Sure. So my dissertation is a history of the working parent, and it comes out of the observation that in the mid-20th century, there was a pretty wide public discourse about working motherhood. Yeah. And by the late 20th century, that is sort of overlaid by a new conversation about working parents. And so it it kind of starts from that premise and then... So wait, wait, like parents weren't working before? Like, like how is, is this like a particularly new thing? So parents, of course, have all, people with children have always worked for yeah. pay, um, men, uh, men and, and women as well. Um, what is interesting about this is that they weren't really spoken about as parents until this kind of distinct moment in the late 70s. There were some occasions where they were, but that's really when yeah. a, a kind of popular discourse about the working parent as a thing becomes a kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. whenever I think of like workers, like when they talk about workers in the 18th century, the 19th century, they may talk about them as like men or, uh, uh, you know, if they're women, there's, there's, there's something about their gender there, but very rarely do people talk about people at workers as, as mothers or fathers. And that's new in, in like the starting in the seventies. Yeah. So the, I mean, there's, there's, you can do a sort of Google engram thing where you just watch the, watch the term explode. So of course there are references to parents beforehand, but what's, what's interesting, I think, and what's distinctive about it is that there's a very intentional effort on the part of a demographic of women that kind of comes of age in the 60s and 70s to use this language. Um, These women are largely feminist people who are interested in shifting the division of labor. And they they invoke the language of the working parent in order to suggest that men really should share equally in this work. So it's a kind of conscious shift and that then gets taken up in a variety of different ways. And that's kind of the story that I, or one of the stories that I'm interested in. So it starts with like people in in my mom's generation who, my my mom was a lawyer. Uh, She supported me and my listless father while my dad was, 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 was doing school. (laughs) And it's, it's people like, that generation of women who started to use this language of working parenthood to suggest that in the households that they were in, that men should also pick up some of the slack. Yeah. So both in the context of the domestic fear to sort of suggest that men should share, rightly share in the work of child rearing and caring for the house, but also in the paid workplace. And I think that's really in some ways where that activism kind of took off the most is in saying, look, we, as growing numbers of women were working, and there's a sort of demographic story here too, um, specifically growing numbers of mothers in the workforce, there was a real need for more support and for more what we now think of as flexibility. And a lot of the initial activism on behalf of quote unquote working parents came um, through ideas like job sharing so that you should be a woman who had a university education, didn't want to have to take low wage work after having a child. And so the idea was that we should have part-time jobs that are open to professional women. So it's also a middle-class story. Oh, wow. Okay. So this is, we're still in the seventies when you have these ideas of job sharing uh, uh, coming up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And what, what sort of struggles are people facing at this time? Like what are, what are some of the the bad things that these people are riling against? Do you have any examples of that? So I interviewed a, a woman who is absolutely great named Pam Walton and Pam was a 
city planner and she was born in the mid forties and she was the first woman in her family to get a university degree. So she'd benefited from the kind of expansion of the British university system in the sixties. And she was working and she had her first son in the late seventies. And when her first son was born, she, uh, she basically was told by her employer that she had to, if she wanted to come back to the job, she had to come back full time. Oh man. And so she and her husband made a go of him sort of working taking care of their kid at home. And, and she was working, I think it was actually for the Welsh water authority. So she was working full time and she went basically completely nuts trying to do that for, you know, a year. Well, when her son was very small, I mean, she did admirably well with it, but she had a really tough time. And what she took from this as she began to research it was she had heard about this idea of job sharing. And so she kept taking it to people and saying, look, can you, can I, can I split this job with someone else who's interested in the same job? And we then, then sort of be enable me to do this as part-time work. So there was, that's the kind of experiences that people were having was having employers saying, absolutely not, you can't do these things. And a kind of total inflexibility, which now seems to middle-class professionals anyway, like a thing of the past. Yeah. This is really shocking for me. It's one of those moments that you have sometimes in history where you you realize that something that you take completely for granted Mm -hmm. has its history. Like for some reason, I, I don't study the 20th century, as you know. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I everything after 1914, I I, I don't know. <laughs> um, but I just kind of assume that all of these like systems that we have right now about like working parents mm-hmm. just kind of were always there. Like you know, having uh, maternity and paternity mm-hmm. leave and having uh, childcare mm-hmm. support and uh, I just, you know yep. lactation rooms I kind of just uh, that's just the the air in which yeah. I've, I've I've breathed so but it's amazing to hear in 1970s to people that this was still so new having a professional working mother that that there was no support about it absolutely wow yeah. So how do they, we get from, from there to now, what happens in between? So what happens is, and I, and this is a kind of, I don't know yet whether I think it's a story that is ironic or a story that tra- it, that's tragic, but what, what, what you would get essentially is this very exciting feminist activism in the seventies that sort of in the face of the decline of the organized feminist movement, and also in the face of the kind of profound political economic changes that Britain and the rest of the West go through in the eighties. Um, basically what happens is you have feminists who kind of migrate into both public and private sector in- institutions and they try to push for these changes. And it's just around the 80s? Yeah. yeah. So this starts to happen in the late, late very late 70s, early 80s. In, in my mental image, I have all of the, 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 the characters are now wearing like really, really, <laughs> really broad shoulders. Totally. Yeah. I mean, a big part of why I decided to do, work on this topic is because of the like iconography of 80s and 90s working mothers, which is amazing <laughs> like, like, like tell me a bit about that like what what's like what comes into my head is is my mom again who who wore those kinds of suits had like a big diamond ring and like horrible haircuts like well it's really, the thing and, and she she would go to the gym i remember she'd go to the gym like and take <laughs> me and put me into the child care and do like fitness uh uh flamenco classes <laughs> she was a working parent. She was a total working parent. She was parent. a working yeah. parent. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a joke about how every generation of historians is just trying to understand their parents. And that is, that's definitely what's going on <laughs> with, with me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you get the shoulder pads and the, you know, the power suits and the, I, I think that's a kind of, that's actually an element that I'd like to to think about more than I've had a chance to is yeah. the, the imagery. But, um, so but yeah, yeah, to your, to your question before, like essentially you get, 
activists who are invested in seeing these things change on behalf of women broadly who end up working in local government and working in mm. private sector organizations and pushing for changes in, in, in employment policy and practice. And that corresponds with suddenly a demand for women's work in the economy at large as Britain kind of deindustrializes and transitions to a service economy and certain sectors like banking where women have been really important, really boom in the 80s. And so suddenly there's a, a corporate and and eventually government interest also in seeing women remain in paid work. Um, there's also a demographic element. There's actually just fewer people of a certain age by the late 80s, early 90s in the workforce. And so they really there's a need for young women. So, so let me just unpack. There's there's two things I, I think are really important yeah. here. Let's just unpack one thing. When you're talking about women's work and we're talking about these, these, these really broad shoulder padded women in the 80s, the work that I'm thinking of them doing is is really like educated and white collar work, right? But is is this some? Let's talk a bit about class. Is this something that's just middle and upper yeah. class work, or is it is it trickling down as well? It's complicated. The, the short answer is it's complicated. It's the um, answer for everything. It's for everything. I mean, it is but. like the activists themselves who begin to push for things like childcare for working parents, for job sharing, and for flexible forms of working, they are predominantly middle class. And they are definitely aware of the issue of class mm. um, to the, in the sense that they realize that there are women, particularly within the union movement, who feel like these are middle class kinds of activism. So and that tension exists. That, the, the union movement in this time is probably more working class than, than, than not, right? Yeah, although the kind of unions that are really growing, I think in the '80s, a lot of them are actually white collar unions. So it's it's a mix, but but the the easy answer, I suppose, is that definitely this is a middle class story. Yeah. I think that it's a little bit more complicated than that. And it's something that I come that I deal with. I hope in in each chapter, but um, the kinds of policies you know you asked about, like how we get from the '70s to the world we live in now, and the kinds of policies that we think of when we think about flexibility and and you know employer flexibility for working parents, those are those are totally things that benefit middle class workers and that are really not a part of the culture of working class jobs. Yeah, when you um, think about something service like, jobs. like, like uh, the, the, the co-working uh, uh, policies, like you don't need that if you're working yeah. on the factory floor. You don't need to, yeah. to, to have some sort of special That's dispensation right. to share work with somebody. It else. is a little more complicated in the sense than that, though, in the sense that like somewhere like Boots, right, the yeah. big pharmacy chain, they implement, they're one of the earliest adopters or sane space really? of things like job sharing. And those apply really? to... Definitely, they the companies adopt the policies with an eye to with an eye to middle class managerial level staff, but there's a kind of if you want to say trickle down effect where you get things like term time contracts where for for clerk jobs for for very much entry level jobs or for more traditionally working class jobs. So it's and I think you get a kind of aspirational culture around working parenthood that isn't just the prerogative of middle class people. Yeah, well, let's, go, let's go back to the aspirational culture because I just want to get one thing nailed down. Yeah. And that's this change, the structural change to the economy that's happening in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. So in my like cartoon, like crayon drawn world view of the history of Britain yeah. after 1914, uh, in the 80s, all the factories close. And in the 90s, the, there's lots of banks. 
Uh, is that what's, what's happening? Basically, I mean, basically, yes. Like what happens is, I mean, a bunch of things happen, right? But yes, this is, this is the period where the, where, and you'll have to talk to Christopher about this one, but this is the period where you have the decline of industry, of heavy industry and the rise of service industry in the UK. Um, and so there's a, there's definitely a restructuring of the economy um, along those lines. And, and those are different kinds of jobs and jobs in which women can participate more in or, or am I wrong? So there are, and this is where I would have to like pull up some actual figures for you, but it's, yeah, there, the service, the service industry is, is the part of the economy where women are, have traditionally and historically been the best represented in yeah. terms of their participation. So there's, there is this sense that corresponds in part to reality that industries in which male workers predominated are declining and industries in which female workers are, uh, are predominating are, are kind of expanding in this period. And I think, I think that's largely the case. Um, it's maybe not as dramatic as it feels to people, but it's definitely, but it still feels dramatic yeah. at the time. So, yeah, so here we are like in the late eighties, early nineties, and you have, uh, uh, this, this situation in which there is a lot of demand for women in the workforce. Yes. And there's also uh, a bunch of language floating around from these feminist activists about how to make the workforce more appealing to women. Mm -hmm. And you you talked about this kind of you call like an aspirational culture of working motherhood. Do you want to talk or working parenthood? Do you yeah. want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think to, I think in order to talk about that, I have to say a little bit more about what happens in the workplace, okay. um, which is that. <sighs> There's gradually, and this is really not because suddenly employers are feminists. That's definitely not the story I'm telling. This is not yeah, a triumphant story. This is not story a triumphant story about feminism. Learning. There's a rhetoric. I mean, the, another way to say that is by the 90s, there's a really self-congratulatory rhetoric on the part of corporations and the government, which says we're family friendly mm. and we are flexible. We want women in the workforce and here's all the things we're willing to do about it. These policies never are never in place for more than a very small minority of largely middle class women, despite that rhetoric. And even those policies that are put into place, there could be problems using them. Men often don't feel that they're able to use them, even though they're ostensibly gender neutral. So there's all this different stuff. But there's this really triumphant rhetoric like we've succeeded. Feminism is one. And you have a generation that comes of age and is raising small children in the late 80s, early 90s that encounters this world in which mm. they're being told the workplace is a place for women. And yet, oh. and men, you're you're supposed to share in the child care and the division of labor. But actually, the reality is that not that much has shifted in a lot of ways. Well, and so how do people then reckon with that is something that I'm okay. interested in. So there's this, there's this kind of, people are drinking the Kool-Aid, thinking that this, that this story that businesses are saying that they are that they're open and uh, good places for working parents to work. Everybody believes that, or or many people believe that. I yeah, I think it's even it's. I think most people aren't thinking about it until the moment at which they suddenly realize they have been working and now they have children and now yeah. they thought that they didn't have to worry about this stuff. I think it's yeah. it's less yeah. For most people, it's less conscious than that. But yeah, they're finding that the reality doesn't match up with the story that they're that they've inherited about. Yeah, and so is this a good time to talk about your the last chapter of your dissertation? Yeah, I kind of want to dig into uh, in the rest of the podcast where we talk about like you you, you talk about the everyday life. Uh, yeah. of, of, of working parenthood in the 80s and 90s, right? Yeah, so I sort of start, the place that the dissertation starts, as I've sort of said, is with this question of how, what kinds of experiences drive a generation of women to say something about work has to change. Um, 
And then I go through these changes in the eighties and I arrive at this place in the nineties and I'm really interested in understanding, well, where does that leave people? Like what, (laughs) if you're, you know, Sally in Petersburg and you have a job in a bank uh, in 1990 Mm. and suddenly you have a baby and your husband works as a probation officer or something, um, then where does it leave you and how are you sort of managing your day-to-day life? Um, how are you managing childcare? How are you managing your work? Are you enjoying your life? Um, how are you relating to these? How are you, are you using, do you identify as a working parent? Do you not yeah. identify as a working parent? Um, I mean, that, that snapshot of that kind of family dynamic, it, it feels really contemporary to me. It feels like the place where we are now. It feels like the beginning of, mm-hmm. of, of, of this new kind of era. Yeah. So yeah, do you, maybe let's talk a little bit about the sense that you have of how that felt. It, I can guess that it's not comfortable because this is not a triumphant yeah. story. It's not. I mean, what's interesting, it's not, but I don't want to paint too bleak of a picture either. So on the one hand, in the 60s, for example, there was incredibly hostile rhetoric about working mothers. And mm-hmm. the the kind of middle class ideal was still the male breadwinner family. Yeah. And yeah, it wasn't wasn't there like a, uh, an understanding that like if you're if you were a working mother you'd give your kid autism and like various absolutely. diseases and 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 that kind of rhetoric persists for sure. You get people well into the '90s saying you know you're a bad mother if you leave your kid who's under three at a daycare center or even with a nanny. Yeah, you know it's 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 really interesting to compare like the bad mother trope of the '50s and the bad mother trope of of, of 2019. Mm. Bad mother trope of the '50s was that your kids are latchkey kids, mm-hmm. right? My, my dad was, was, was called a latchkey kid, mm-hmm. now, which meant he had a key to the house. Yeah. He could enter and leave the house on his own. Yeah. In 2019, it's the helicopter parent, the person who, who, who devotes too much time to yeah. their kid, who's too involved, who makes their kid their work. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that backlash against a sort of helicopter parent is very recent though. Oh, I yeah, think I in think... the 90s, we're still in the moment of high enthusiasm for, for helicopter, helicopter parenting. parenting. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. So you have this sort of, you do, you have a continuation of that rhetoric for sure in some places, but really in the nineties, I think for the first time, in the late eighties, early nineties, that begins, that kind of rhetoric begins to lose out against one, you know, there's a, there's a new middle-class ideal by the nineties, which is of a dual income family. Yeah. And that is really what people are aspiring to, not the, not the male breadwinner household. And part of that, re- part of that reflects the demographic reality that people are having middle-class people are having to have dual incomes. Um, so, so there's this kind of, there's a sense that both partners in a, in a, in a marriage uh, will get satisfaction, both from participating in the family yeah. life and from working, that they're both going to wear two hats and, and, and find kind of the, the grist of their life from wearing both of their hats. And that if you don't wear both hats, yeah. there's something missing. Yeah, and I think that people do buy into that to a large extent, or or that maybe to be more specific, some people buy into that mm. and very consciously say, "Right, I'm a modern woman. That means I'm going to work and have a family, and my husband's going to help with the childcare." And the and the you know the modern man says, "Yes, I'm going to do half of the childcare. I'm going to do at least some of the childcare, some of the domestic work." I think there are people for whom there is a real enthusiasm for this sharing, with this idea of sharing. But there's also uh, perhaps an even bigger demographic for whom it's just an economic reality. Like yeah, they have, they to, have to work and, yeah. 
And that's true of ever more people, right? That's true of more middle-class people than it w- than was true in the 60s. And so there's that aspect too. And, and so there, there is a positive story about a greater acceptance of women in paid work mm-hmm. to be told. And definitely some of the, you know, the policy, like maternity leave, paternity leave, these things, the right to return to work and to have a career break, those things are hugely important. And there is a positive story to be told about them. I guess I'm ultimately more interested in understanding the limitations of that success because it's, I think, what we need to understand in order to be able to think about the future. So I have a, I have a practical question. When yeah. I, 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 my dissertation deals a lot with everyday life. Yeah. I'm really curious about what people ate, how they felt, yeah. where they went, how, how they did their dishes and their laundry. Yeah. But when you're curious about that, it's really hard to find sources about that. Yeah. Like there's not just a big book that says all the boring stuff from the 18th century that you can find in an archive. And for me, you have to mm-hmm. kind of cobble together like little glimpses of, mm-hmm. of, of how it felt. How have you done this in, in this chapter? Yeah, so I I mean, I I expected to not be able to find that kind of really rich, like maybe we would think of like in the, I don't know, in a different century, diaries or something, yeah. right? Like yeah. I expected That's to not- That's basically the only place you right. can see this, diaries. Yeah. yeah, and the options for the 20th century are a little bit better than that, but not, not hugely better. And I, I expected essentially not to be able to find it. So I did oral histories. That was yeah. a big part of my research. Um, although it's- Although that's fraught with so much methodological difficulty that like how I'm not sure. I mean, it was great. It was like my the best part of working on the dissertation for sure. I'm just jealous but, that um, you can talk to somebody. It's really helpful. Your, your time period. For me, studying the 18th century, sometimes I wonder like if I could travel back in time for like a minute yeah. or a half day, I'm absolutely certain that I would come away and just be like everything I know is wrong. Like every, like I, yeah. I completely mis- misunderstood my time period. I mean, it's a whole, kind of. it's a whole other, like, I actually think it's a really interesting question to like methodologically, how do you study the very recent past? Yeah. With, because it is a kind of trap. Like I emailed someone this morning being like, oh, can you remind me of, you know, I emailed one of my research subjects this morning as I'm writing because I realized something I had forgotten to ask. So like, <laughs> that's, that's weird. There's a, there's an element of sort of I don't want to call it journalism, but it... Oh, it, I call it journalism all the time. I it's make weird. Every, every time I talk with a person who studies the 20th century, it's journalism. It's journalism. Um, I mean, but, it is. So you, you had a world histories, but you also found something... Yeah, so I did. Else. I ended up... What was cool is I ended up finding sources that I didn't expect to find. So one of the feminist charities that I write about, which is called... It's originally called the Working Mothers Association, and it changes its name in 1994 to Parents at Work, which sort of says it all yeah. about gender. Um, they ran a competition for, they did a bunch of different competitions. They staged a competition for employer of the year, but they also ran these competitions for working mother of the year what? and working mother's <laughs> helper of the year and eventually working father of the year. I mean, this, so um, from, from my perspective, that is so funny because in the 18th century, the, the groups that I'm studying, there are, you know, hundreds of agricultural societies mm-hmm. And all that they do, the thing that like really makes them get up out of bed in the morning is having competitions for various mm-hmm. things. Best servant, best plowman, um, most most well-behaved maid. Like, and here we are in 1990 with a, uh, a the Working Mothers Association, which could have been a, an association in the 18th century. <laughs> uh, same name, and they're basically doing the same kind of competition. Yeah. Like in the 18th century, did they was the award like a 
in like a, a silver plate with an inscription. I mean, basically, I think it was, I don't even know what the award was. I feel like it was like a plaque or something. Yeah, so yeah, essentially, or just like a photo <laughs> in the right publication. Um, I actually think that's really interesting too. There's something, there is some kind of like, it serves a very basic function, right? Which is to like, it, it, it sort of validates a certain kind of behavior yeah. and it's a community building function. It's like, you know, this is what, and it, it allows also for an articulation of the organization's values. There's a group of people who have a view of what they want the world to be. Yeah. And they have the ability to say, Hey, you people who are conforming to yeah. this view the best, we're going to give you something awesome. Yeah. Inscribed plate or a plaque. So there's working mother of the year, working mother's helper of the year, yeah. um, which is not an elf, but a, but a husband. Um, and, and how, do, what sort of sources does this give you? So I found when I was in the archive of this particular organization, I found, um, boxes and boxes of submission letters. Um, so people would, people would write in to nominate themselves or their <laughs> wives or their friends or their nannies or their partners or whatever, their or grandma or whoever. Oh, and so you get these kind of 500 word letters. And of course they're written in the they're in a specific way for a specific purpose, but they really give a kind of, I don't think a pretty interesting picture of people's everyday lives and the challenges that they, that they face and also their hopes and their ambitions and their, and what they think made them the working mother. Yeah. Mother's help and what the they think, what they think it means to be a working parent or yeah. a working mother and what, and you also get a sense reading these of the ways in which they consciously invoke the language of working parenthood that has sort of like become a kind of feature of the media in the nineties, but also unconsciously. So a lot of them describe their ideal child minders or ideal child carers as infinitely flexible. And oh. that's exactly the kind of language that feminists initially in the seventies said, organizations, companies, you need to be flexible. And really people kind of internalize this and understand the ideal working parent to be flexible oh, or the wow. ideal child care to be flexible. That's such a huge shift. So like in the seventies, these women uh, activists who started to put the bug in people's ears about working parenthood, yeah. they said the way to do it is to make the organizations who employ us flexible, yeah. to tame capitalism, yeah. to make those big companies treat us more fairly, or at least with, mm -hmm. with, with a little bit more slack so yeah. that we can be better in the home life. And now in the 1990s, when this idea starts to be put into practice, what's happening is it's not the workplace that's meant to be flexible, but the worker. That's yeah, I think people internalize that to an extent. And, and you know, it's also it's also a issue of working with the sources. Of course, these people are writing in a way that kind of valorizes their own or valorizes their family members or their friends. Parents, you know, yeah. 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 They're not, Qualities, they're not writing but, in saying like I'm I'm a bad mother, right bad parent. But they're also not writing in and saying my workplace really hasn't been helpful, mm. which is that's that's the kind of like subtext of a lot of what they're yeah. saying. And like here's how I've had to accommodate around it. Um, but they're not going on and saying, you know, they're not they're not writing a narrative about how in the f an explicit narrative about how in the face of completely problematic organizations <laughs> they yeah. nonetheless persevered. It's really like I yeah, my work wasn't super helpful and here's how I've coped. So what's the sense that you get when you're reading through these? When you were in the archives, like, and you popped open the top of one of these big cardboard boxes and started to flip through them 
and and just get kind of this gestalt of what was happening. Yeah. What, what what was the picture that you saw? I mean, I cried. I like cried the first time I read these. Probably because I felt like I was reading about my mom's life, but also because they're move. I mean, they're moving. They're on the one hand, it's like you know, men writing in or, or mothers-in-law writing in and saying, you know, my daughter, my daughter-in-law, my wife is the best mother because (laughs) look how relentlessly hard she works. Look how little time she gets to herself. Look how, you know, there's a sort of constant emphasis on on selflessness Mm. and, and those kinds of traditionally female virtues. And even the men who get nominated get described in this language. It's very traditionally feminine language of selflessness and, um, self-sacrifice. So there's, I don't know, there, it's, it's, a, it's affecting, it's hard not to be affected reading by that because people are, people are being very sincere, clearly yeah. very sincere. It's and, very pure. It's you a, know, there's, yeah, there's yeah. a woman who writes about her mother driving, you know, three hours each way to take care of her kids so that she can stay in a paid work because oh, her job is important to her or because her job is necessary to her. So there's, there's, it's, it's moving stuff, but it's also, you also come away with this, the kind of, frustrations and again it's like that isn't very forward because people are trying to write in this positive way but you get the sense for you get the sense of the stress and the fatigue and the guilt and all of those things come through um and the kind of intensified nature of work both at work and at home that people are dealing with yeah so there's something like the view of these people's lives that you're getting this the, the quality of their everyday life like there's something deeply moving about that but 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 the sense that you're getting is that everybody is just grueling through their work every day. Is that is that a good characterization? Yeah, that people that leisure has disappeared is what I would say. Yeah, like when I when I imagine eighteenth century bourgeois motherhood. Yeah, it's like gentle and lazy. Yeah, like there's a lot of time. Like I like just the picture in my head yeah. is some somebody in a diaphanous dress teaching a toddler how to play piano in like a one of those rooms with gigantic windows with light streaming and right like it's it's it, it takes some time there's there's yeah there's it's not as 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 hairy the, yeah. the ideal of, of 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 the household in the 18th and 19th centuries was one that was insulated from the market mm-hmm. that was a refuge a yeah. place of rest and recovery from the bad outside world yeah and men went out into the bad outside world and did battle but if you were a woman, you got to stay in the nice inside yeah. world and 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 show. Yeah. And here, it's it's both places are are a battleground. Is that a good characterization? Both yeah. work and and home. And I mean, you're talking kind of about in part about the cultural representation, and I would say it's exact. It's as much the case in the cultural representation of working parenthood as, as it is in the reality, if not more so. That the <laughs> you know, if you read a like a women's magazine article about coping as a working parent or whatever. There's two coping, coping, coping right? Would never say that in the 18th century. I think coping as a parent. I was writing about one yesterday, an article called, um, what is it called? We can make it work or we can do it, right? There's this, yeah. there's, there's a, the most kind of superficial level, the claim is that this is totally manageable. We've got this covered. You can get your husband to do stuff. You can get these women's organizations to do stuff. Yeah. We can handle it. We can make it work. But then the subtext is things are totally out of control. Yeah. Things are unmanageable, and the only way to make it work is for you, the individual, and or at best the family, yeah. to kind of operate at a level of like relentless efficiency and organization, so that yeah. there isn't any separation between 
work and not work. I mean, leisure dis- leisure disappears. I think leisure disappears in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, so I think that's a great point, but I just want to, like, there's something that, 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 that's sticking out to me about, about this, that we can make it work, that it's possible to have this yeah. kind of frictionless life where you get these sources of satisfaction both from the world of work and from the world of home. Yeah. But it's the onus probably of the mother herself to do this heroic work of organization to actually get yeah. things through. And there's kind of like this 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 negative like like assumption that if you don't do that heroic work, you won't have it all. Like something will break. Yeah. I mean, this is the trap that I think this is the trap that second wave feminism got us into because, yeah, of course, we all want to think that we can find fulfillment in work and outside of work and that and that we can have strike some sort of a relationship between those two things. I hesitate to use the word balance, (laughs) but the realities are that those ideas came about in the same period as, you know, capitalism entered yet another phase of intensification where we have ever more, you know, and where flexibility itself became kind of, um, what's the word utilized in order to actually, yeah, to make people work more and longer and at home all the time. So I think that, again, I don't know whether I think it's tragic or ironic or a bit of, a bit of both, but there's something, there's something very bleak that happens at that intersection. Well, tell me, just zoom out a little bit and help me the completely ignorant person about history what happened in the nineties to capitalism to make it more intense, to make people work more? Like what's the big story there? That's a good question. I mean, I think it's more of an 80s story, not a 90s story. I think the nineties piece is this are the sort of like consequences of, of that 80s transformation in the economy. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's growing global competition. It's the, you know, the UK is suddenly embedded in a, in a globalized economy to an unprecedented degree. It's embedded in the, I mean, quite, Concretely, it's embedded in a European Union where there's greater competition on the labor market. So there's a bunch of elements of that, yeah. um, and in an era in which financial capitalism is growing and expanding. So I think I think there's some of all of that, um, and I think yeah, I think it's also that you know capitalism in the form of employers in the form of corporations or whatever is always looking for ways to get people to do more. Yeah. And ironically, ideas like flexibility help companies get people to do more well i just just think about our lives right now where i remember in 2008 when i got a smartphone Mm -hmm. there was this sense that the smartphone gave you freedom you could get you could check your email on it whenever yeah you could find a map whenever and now the feeling that i have about cell phones is that they are prisons mm-hmm. that you can always be contacted with. Yeah. somebody can always ask you to work and especially like people who have far less power in the labor market yeah that kind of flexibility is pinching them like i think of, yeah. of people who drive for uber or who work mm-hmm. in, in in these in the sharing economy that flexibility is a, is a is a sharp knife that means that they yeah their free time is turned into money yeah, I had a very poignant moment doing a, an interview with um, a woman named Adrian Boyle, who's an amazing Irish-born um, activist, and I interviewed I interviewed her um, on her boat, a tiny little barge <laughs> in the in Dublin, in the harbor in Dublin. This, and this 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 sounds like what historians do in movies. Totally, this was the most exotic thing I did. So, but she lives on a she lives on, it's a very small it's a barge, it's a tiny little houseboat in 
in Dublin and in an area in an area of Dublin that's being massively redeveloped and and I'm imagining like those gleaming like yeah, like like exactly. new apartment buildings called like the Strand. Totally. Something. And I'm sitting with her in this freezing. This is December. It was really cold. We're sitting in her little boat trying to keep warm. And right outside of the window of the boat, I can see Google's you know tax-free Irish headquarters. Mm. And we we're talking about flexibility. And she said, you know, flexibility was our dream. We wanted to be able to have flexibility to combine our working lives with the rest of our lives and to not have to constantly, you know, sacrifice one to the other. And she said, I now see what flexibility has become every time I look out the window and I see people at 24 hours working in Google's offices. And that's what flexibility has become. And I, I mean, I can tell you that all of the women I interviewed who were involved in activism on behalf of working parents in the seventies feel deeply conflicted about the way that things have turned out and where those conversations have ended up. Yeah. I mean, they feel like they accomplished certain things and they didn't accomplish others. Um, but they feel, they feel saddened by how little has changed in certain respects. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about like why work matters and why work might matter in history. Cause like, it seems that mm -hmm. part of your story is how people tried to imagine a certain kind of freedom and liberation work. Mm -hmm. And then what happened was just again, a cartoonish like simplification work expanded to fit mm -hmm. everything like these moves that people were making yeah. to allow them to both work and be human beings instead were turned to make a new part of life more work so i would say that i don't want to mischaracterize my activists i yeah. think they they did not necessarily think that work would liberate i think that that's a kind of there was an ask there was an element of second wave feminism that was very enthusiastic about work and actually what these women wanted largely was to continue to do the interesting work for which yeah. they trained to do but to actually not have to do as much of it so mm. they i, I, I think my mom who yeah uh, wanted to be a lawyer uh, one, a family friend told her that women can't be lawyers and, and, and not to go into school. She became a lawyer, started the first uh, female law practice in Eugene, Oregon, mm -hmm. worked a ton. And when she had me, she got a job that let, let her do work like two or three days a week and then hang out with me. It was, yeah. it was like a cute toddler. Like, and I, I, I think that, she, that, that, that you're telling the story, this history of, of, of my mom. Yeah. I'm totally telling the history of your mom. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it wasn't that necessarily that people, it wasn't necessarily that women felt that work would liberate them, although there were definitely some people who in, used that kind of rhetoric and, and got pushback from other feminists. It was more that women just wanted to have access to the same lives that men had, that mm -hmm. were enriched by having multiple activities and, yeah. and not home right, or to work or to cl the club or to their. Not know. having to do the relentless nonstop work of parenting small children necessarily 24 hours a day if they didn't yeah. want to. Yeah. Um, or if they trained to do something else with their time. So yeah. that, and, and you can see how that was a middle-class perspective, right? Because childcare labor was still largely performed by um, working class women, even when it got outsourced. So, so anyway, that's that's all to say that I think that it was complicated at the beginning in terms of what people wanted out of work. But I think from you, the kind of broader question you asked about why work in history is interesting or what yeah, what like, we can sort of... Well, I, 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 I'm just imagining right now, like 
work being like the big historical actor moving from like the 18th century into the 20th century, like it being the subject of a history. And the 18th century work is something that people do in very small groups. Mm -hmm. um, it is uh, to, to more or less a degree uh, fitting into to natural rhythms, rhythms both of the season yeah. and of a person's life. Uh, it's still brutal and hard often, but it it it's it's yeah. it's it's more localized and 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 and, and granular. Mm -hmm. um, and moving into the the you know the the nineteenth century with factories and time discipline yeah. and all that shit, like like work seems to this this new kind of work that's efficient, mm -hmm. that is rational, that is more demanding in a certain way, like both makes our lives more uh useful and, and 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 interesting and also more grueling and tiring and it it it, it expands like the blog mm -hmm. to take on more and more things over time is there's that also yeah there's also i mean i think from that like long durée kind of perspective like there's there's kind of a collapse again I think increasingly, and I think maybe it's too soon to know for sure what's happening, but there's a kind of collapse into a complete permeability between work mm. and life that yeah. was more characteristic of the 18th and the 19th century. And that's kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, like, 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 tell me, give me an example of that. Like, well, the, the, you that. know, the kind of the rise of gig work, which is yeah. basically, uh, what's it called? Like peace work or like work that, you know, the kind of work that a woman could take in to do after the kids go to bed. I mean, I, I, you know, there's, there's a kind of proliferation of work that happens in ways that are not disembedded from everyday life even driving Lyft or Uber, right? Yeah. Um, you kind of go continuously go in and out of work time and non-work time. And so there's something that feels more reminiscent to me of the 18th century in a way there. Yeah. But also it's a different, I mean, it's also fundamentally different in lots of ways. So I, I don't want to claim that we're returning to the 18th century or something, but I, I think that, yeah, work is work is certainly no longer embedded in the kinds of formal institutions and time patterns that yeah. characterized factory work, at least in the I, 19th century. I mean, when I think of my work, I do a lot of my work from the couch. Yeah. My wife does a lot of work from the couch. Yeah. Like we do a lot of work on the phone. Like I do a lot of my thinking walking around the, the street. Yeah. Like there's no space and time for work. Do you think that we just haven't like learned how to uh, like mark out our own space of freedom in this new kind of like, permeable workspace i think we haven't figured out how to rein in the uh, rein in capitalism i think we haven't figured out how to force you know the interests of capital into not completely i mean if you can buy a book on amazon while you're on the toilet or in the bathtub yeah. like we've lost or like write we, a book, or write a book. Yeah. i mean I, I think that is the problem the problem is that we haven't you know I was having a conversation last night with someone who was saying that it was incredibly difficult when, as a manager, when people took maternity leave on a small team. Yeah. Totally get it. But to hell with that. I mean, of course it's difficult. And that's the reality. And that's what it means to rein in organizations and and force them to have to accommodate lives outside of work. Um Yeah, I, I wonder whether, like, it's one of the reasons why I study the thing that I study. I think that there's this potent, this this moment in the 18th century when organizations are starting to get really powerful mm -hmm. and they they could have oriented themselves around like just the pleasure of the people within mm -hmm. that organization but instead they oriented themselves around profit mm -hmm. and efficiency 
And those organizations got really big. And now mm-hmm. we live our lives daily in the shadows of those organizations. And like we haven't yeah. really thought about how to get out from under their shadow. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's difficult to, I mean, it's it's impossible to win by the rules which we've been handed anymore in terms of how to live your own life in a way that, I mean, this is where I get really frustrated and where a lot of the women I interviewed get frustrated is with language like work-life balance, because, you know, there's a reason, you know, there are reasons why the language changes that are, that are, you know, have nothing to do with nothing more than needing new words to describe the same thing, to make them, to make it seem novel. But there are also reasons that are more kind of, they're darker than that, let's say. And I think the concept of balance is probably the most individuating way we could possibly think about how people are to navigate their day-to-day lives. It's, it's really becomes about the individual is responsible for striking yeah. some sort of relationship between these things rather than the organizations having to being reined in so that they do not intrude into every aspect of people's lives. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of that column that you that you mentioned a couple of minutes back. You can make it work. Yeah, it's you, your onus to have a work life balance. Yeah, it's up to us to like drink our kombucha right. and do our yoga and go to therapy so that we can go yeah. to work and be efficient. And it's not a criticism of the organizations that that yeah. structure our lives that they should maybe get us yeah. to work four days a week instead of seven. There's some amazing statistic that I'm going to get wrong, but it's like something in research in the 90s on fathers that showed that like some tiny percentage of fathers had guaranteed workplace paternity leave of mm-hmm. more than two days. Yeah. But like 40% or something, some very high percentage had access to workplace counseling services, which yeah. really says it all. Like we aren't going to make the structural changes that are actually going to allow you to avoid stress. What we're going to do is we're going to be here when you get too stressed that you can't cope with the bandaid of, you know, therapeutic culture to kind of get you back to work as quickly and efficiently as possible. Um, and I don't know quite how we get ourselves out of that trap because now we're being sold wellness culture and therapeutic culture as a kind of, as a cure for the stress that we have and it's hard to argue with those things in a way except for that they're not the root of the problem yeah it feels like putting a band-aid on everything I, yeah the original wellness culture is in the 19th century when stressed out office workers uh identified this new problem neurasthenia mm-hmm. and you, you you being a historian know the solution to the problem you know what 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 the, big the like yeah the, uh, the like the taking the cure, like going off to the resort or going, the seaside, yeah. take the airs. Take the airs, go to the seaside, get some sunlight, or you get the cure in a bottle and uh-huh. get soda water, right? Like it's the, the, we already have the kombucha of the 19th century mm-hmm. in our fridges all the time and it's Coca-Cola. <laughs> and that did, Coca-Cola didn't solve the problem in the 19th century and it had cocaine in it. Exactly. <laughs> uh, that, yeah, that's exactly it. Um, And you get, I mean, you get like, this happens in very, we're kind of talking at a level of abstraction, but this happens in very concrete ways in starting in the late eighties and certainly in the nineties companies, Sainsbury's, Boots, NatWest, Barclays, big banks, big supermarket chains, all kinds of companies, also government organizations like, uh, the tax and revenue service, they start to, they start to produce material, HR material directed at employees that covers mm-hmm. things like relaxation practices and, oh, wow. um, and 
also, you know, finding a nanny. Like this becomes very much embedded. This isn't, you know, this isn't just picking up a magazine. This becomes embedded in the structures of employment practice and in, and in workplaces. That's oh. wild. And I bet at the same time, these companies are demanding people to work longer hours and harder yeah. and more efficiently and, and to do more with with less. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, thanks very much for, for, for joining us on the program. Thank you Sarah. for having me. Uh, thanks, uh, uh, as always, to Duncan Barton, who made the images on the podcast, and to Jonathan Lear, who made the music. Thank you again uh, to my mother-in-law, who always texts me about what she thinks about the shows. If you like the show, rate and review us on, Amazon, uh, on iTunes and share us on social media. We'll be back next Tuesday with a as yet undetermined podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me.